you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to watch the video version of this at youtube.com for just Chris Voss. We've got an award-winning attorney and entrepreneur on the show. She's written a great new book that I think will blow your mind. And uh, some of the things she's doing in the world are making the world a better place. Her book, A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom. Her name is Brittany K. Barnett. Uh, she's focused on social impact investing. She is dedicated to transforming the criminal justice system and has won freedom for numerous people serving fundamental death sentences for federal drug offenses, including seven clients who received executive clemency from President Barack Obama. Uh, Brittany is the founder of several nonprofits and social enterprises, including the Buried Alive Project, Girls Embracing Mothers, and the uh, XVI Capital Partners, it's Roman numerals there, and the Melens Rain LLC. She has earned many honors, including being named one of America's most outstanding young lawyers by the American Bar Association. And she's the author of this great new book, a memoir detailing how her journey transformed her understanding of injustice in the courts, of genius languishing behind bars, and the very definition of freedom itself. Welcome to the show, Brittany. How are you? I'm great, Chris. Thank you for having me. Awesome sauce. And so we we can see your great book that you've got behind there. Have uh, a copy there you go. Awesome sauce. <laughs> and I've been reading it. It's a beautiful read. Just great. Very descriptive. Thank you. Uh, it brought me a few tears as I've been going through the book. Uh, it made me cry a little bit. So I'll give you that. Aww. But it's a it's a it's a book of the heart and caring and love. Uh, so uh, give us your plug so people can find you on the interwebs. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Miss BKB. That's M-S-B-K-B. I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn under Brittany K. Barnett. There you go. There you go. And you can order the book up on Amazon.com. You can also see all the great authors we have on there at Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. Uh, so what, uh, what motivates you to write this book? You know, Chris, really my clients, I never in a million years thought I would write a book, but we had a remarkable journey and they really encouraged me to put pen to paper. And so once that was done and I thought about, okay, what is the intention behind this? You know, I think in part I wrote it to correct false narratives about those most impacted by the war on drugs, and just this whole media propaganda that was onslaught in the late 80s that led to the enactment of the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. And so the other reason I wrote the book is for other young Black girls like me from the South to have that representation. Growing up, I always wanted to be a lawyer. 
I grew up in rural East Texas with a town of about 1,200 people. But as I got older, I just never knew any lawyers. And becoming a lawyer started to seem out of my league. And I know that was because there were no lawyers in my small rural town. And there were definitely no lawyers who looked like me. And so I wrote the book as well to inspire young girls. And so give us an overview of the book, uh, kind of a, a um, from down from the sky sort of view of what's in it. Yeah, so the book details my journey, uh, my childhood growing up in rural East Texas, having the challenge of a mother who was addicted to drugs and ultimately went to prison herself, and just how the proximity to those issues really helped me to be very well-rounded when it comes to the casualties of the war on drugs. Then it follows me through college and my career as a corporate lawyer, working on mergers and acquisitions, literally closing billion-dollar deals by day and by night working pro bono to save lives of people who have been buried alive under draconian drug laws. And it follows my work with Sharonda Jones very closely, who was a woman from East Texas serving life without parole. And her case just changed my life forever. Mm -hmm. And so was, was your mother's addiction and, and going to prison and was that something that really drove you to become an attorney then? I would say not really, but I would say they really brought me proximate to be able to handle the issues for the criminal justice system. I went to law school to become a corporate lawyer, and that is what I wanted to do. I had gotten a bachelor's and master's in accounting and became a CPA working for PricewaterhouseCoopers and then finally got the courage, you know, to go to law school. And I did that wanting to blaze this trail and climb the corporate ladder. And once I got there and in law school, I came across the case of Sharonda Jones. In her case, really opened my eyes to the system. And because my mom had been in prison, I was very close and saw firsthand, you know, the devastation of mass incarceration on not just families, but entire communities. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a thing in the book that you referenced that in your city during the eighties with the attack on, on minorities and, and, uh, stuff with the Reagan administration, you know, the drug war technically, which was started by Nixon, which was designed to persecute minorities. Uh, and, uh, you talk about how in, in, I think in your city or County, there was like 34 times the amount of, of people that would go to jail for marijuana. Yeah, in the rural East Texas area I grew up in, it was very blatant, the disproportionate impact um, of aggressive law enforcement, the laws, you know, just had on people of color. And I just thought it was limited for a while, you know, to my little slice of of country East Texas until I got older and started learning more and saw this is systemic. This is nationwide. And so, unfortunately, that 34 times rate that you mentioned, it impacts real people in real ways. And and I want to 
make it my intention just with the work that I do to show that we have to look beyond the numbers and see the heartbeats of the people impacted. Yeah. And the other thing I took from your book, uh, uh, your mama's financial aid package was cut as part of Ronald Reagan's austerity program that closed several hospitals in the area cut drug treatment programs, childcare initiatives, education, and daycare was no longer an option. Like a lot of people don't realize that when they cut these programs, they largely targeted minority areas. Reagan, you know, we've had, we've had several authors on and City on a hill. They talk about, you know, how Reagan used racism in the eighties and and to gain power um, and, and persecute minorities. And, And then you see the fall of this where, where you know people turn to drugs, people are struggling economically. They can't do their thing, and and then of course the the sheriffs and police departments roll in to make the thing even worse. Yeah, it definitely caused my mom, you know, to have to pivot as she was putting herself through school with two little girls in tow, you know. And I think that people have to really feel and recognize just the impact that has or had, you know, on on folks just trying to survive. Yeah. One of the narratives that I hear from a lot of people, and I I know when I used to be a Republican, I used to have this, well, everyone can be successful. Everyone can uh, raise themselves up by their bootstraps. And they'll cite, you know, random examples. But when you grow up, I think when you grow up in impoverished neighborhoods, when you grow up in redlined areas, Jim Crow areas, um, that makes a whole difference on your outlook. It gives you a whole difference on what jobs and availability you have, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there was a part that you talked in your book about uh, growing up. Uh, I believe this was, uh, um, this is in the city of commerce throughout the sixties. The city of commerce was known as a sundown town. Any black person found on the streets after dark was in danger of being lynched. This is in the sixties. I mean, God knows what it was like before that. But you but you talk about the neighborhoods and growing up in some of these places. Um and uh uh and different things where um you know it, it caused different issues in how you were growing up. In fact the uh uh I think there's another one that talks about the uh, Jim Crow statues where um Used to see, your grandpa used to say that the general was built to look sternly at the black side of the town as a warning regarding where the town's heart lies, if there was ever any question. So those different things really struck me as I was reading your book. Yeah, and it was things that growing up, being raised there, we didn't pay much attention to, sadly enough. I mean, the my high school mascot when I was in Bogota was the Rivercrest rebel. It was a Confederate soldier. It's not anymore, thankfully, but when I was growing up, it was. And so even with these Confederate statues in our face every day, you know, back then we just didn't think much about it. And, you know, I hear exactly what you're saying and I appreciate your openness about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, because a lot of people, think that way and 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 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it best you know it's hard to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps when you don't have any boots yeah 
And that's 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 the importance of you know what we've been talking about over the last while of Black Lives Matter, and and realizing the systematic and and uh, you know the more conversation I've been having, I realize how deep this fabric goes of of uh, systematic racism and repression, all this sort of things. And now we mentioned uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, there's some uh, books or some different data that Martin Luther King talked about uh, that uh, are in line with your book title. Uh, can you expand on that some more? Yeah, for sure. So my book is called A Knock at Midnight, and it's named after the text of a Martin Luther King Jr. sermon titled The Same. And it was a time during this whole push to get people free where the work starts to weigh on you, you know, Chris. And it was a dark time of my, of my life of feeling of putting in all these years of work and not really helping people achieve the freedom, you know, that we were pushing so hard for. And during this time, I was representing a man named Corey Jacobs, who was serving life without parole for a federal drug offense, his first ever conviction, felony or otherwise. And he's serving time in a maximum security prison. I'm a corporate lawyer, you know, enjoying the fruits of my labor. But I'm dealing with this dark moment of a sense of disappointment and failure. And he sent me a message with the text to the Martin Luther King Jr. sermon, A Knock at Midnight. And the text contains a parable about a man knocking on his neighbor's door at midnight seeking bread. And the neighbor doesn't answer, and the man keeps knocking, and the neighbor doesn't answer, and the man keeps knocking. And really what King is talking about in that sermon is the three loaves of bread that the neighbor was seeking represent hope, faith, and love. And the weary traveler at midnight knocking on the door seeking bread is really seeking the dawn. And I knew I was going to write that scene in the book about how Corey Jacobs sent me this uplifting sermon during a dark time. And so while I was writing the scene, I listened to the sermon and I listened to it again and I was like, wow, this is really the backdrop of our freedom journey. All of the knocking, you know, years of people not answering the door, more knocking at midnight, you know, and, and in reality, we were seeking the dawn. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I asked Eddie Glaude Jr. this. I'm like, are you and I going to be talking about how we still haven't listened to James Baldwin or Martin Luther King uh, or Malcolm X? Uh, you know, 55 years from now, again. I mean, it was in, and so I'm hoping that we can get a lot of these issues resolved or we can start getting down those issues resolved in what things are going on. Now, one of the features of that you've been doing uh, that's gained, uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, popularity was Kim Kardashian, uh, and I believe working with you uh, to gain the release of people. Yeah, you know, I first came in contact with Kim when she saw my client, Alice Johnson, had done a video uh, for Mike.com telling her story. And it was so random because the video went viral and Kim Kardashian just so happened to be on Twitter and saw the video. And she was not only moved to tears, she was really moved to action. 
help Alice Johnson. And so I was a part of the legal team for Alice Johnson who received clemency from Trump a couple of years ago. And that's how I began working with Kim and that case really opened our eyes to the system. And so, you know, thankfully she's used her platform to really raise awareness for the work that we are doing. And that has been very helpful. You know, people need to know that this is happening, that people are said to die in prison for, for drugs. Yeah. And I think in, in the young lady's case who, uh, who uh, got released from prison, uh, she had been told that uh, her family had been told that the only way she was going to leave prison was in a body bag, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I don't think the general public understands or, or knows is that there's no parole in federal prison. So life is life. And I just felt those life sentences in the core of my very being. There's, it's the second most severe penalty permitted by law in America. You know, and so you had people like Alice Johnson or my client Sharonda Jones and Corey Jacobs sentenced to life without parole. They were serving the same amount of time as the Unabomber. Yeah. That's extraordinary too. I mean, you, you just, you just see it. There was a quote in your book that I, that I had uh, tried to save that said something about, um, and I think it was one of your relatives or friends, uh, who said, who said, basically you guys have gone from, uh, slavery to the, the new way of persecuting black people were using the courts and, and drug charges and everything else. And I believe I read through her first, uh, her, her, what kind of started her down a bad road and she had a problem with addiction. Uh, gambling addiction, uh, if I recall rightly. Um, and she had a good job at FedEx, but evidently she got fired from that. And of course, once she got fired, you're, you're besmirched with that. And, and, uh, and kind of down the road she went of trying to figure out how to survive. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the problems we had from that area was they started closing a lot of mental health institutions, a lot of psychology things, you know, now we're kind of learning how damaging the drug war was uh, and, and how, instead of sending people to rehab and sending people, sending places to deal with their addiction, we just threw them in prison and threw them away, which is, uh, incredibly unfortunate and a horrible, horrible way to deal with these things. And when you look at the fallout, which I'm sure you do, and I, I hope more people as we talk about this, think about this. You look at the fallout to the families. You look at to the, the kids who grow up with their mom, without their moms or their dads. Um, uh, you know, uh, the one gentleman who was in the Wendy's parking lot was shot. He'd spent so much time away from his daughters being raised. And, and so when he was confronted with the police again, he panicked because he's like, my God, I'm going to go lose more of my life. You know, he was on parole. Um, I'm going to use more of my life uh, where my kids aren't going to see me. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons he panicked. Um, And so, I mean, people just don't realize how much this, this damages um, everything, how it just destroys. And then, and then of course these kids grow up and they're left on the streets or left without parents. And then they turn to a life of crime as well. And just the, it just perpetuates it and fills our prisons. And that's why you look at our prisons, which, uh, what is it? We have 4% of the world's population. We've imprisoned 25% of, uh, of, 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 uh, something or other. I forget the term, but no, yeah. you're right on point. Ordinary. It's a sad number. Yeah. And, it, and, and, and sadly, when you look at the, 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 uh, the makeups of the people that are in there, it's, it's, it's mostly minorities. 
So you sit there and you go, okay, well, we see what's going on here. It's, it's, it's just awful. So uh, you, you, you start, you became a successful attorney. You, you went through uh, school and all that good stuff. Uh, the story is beautiful in the, in the book, how you lay the foundation of going through it, uh, leaving your sister behind. But, you know, there came to a point in your teens where you had to save yourself. And, you know, that whole journey of what you have to do. Um, uh, I, I've, I've dealt with addiction and seen relationships with addiction, so I know what that story is like. And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's hard for children to go through. Um, and then you become a successful corporate attorney, and you start getting involved with this. Uh, and uh, what, what, do you see, what do you see the future of this going to? Do you, do you think that uh, we can move, uh, hopefully, with maybe a new administration to reforms? I'm hoping Kamala Harris would be someone who would help us get in reforms, maybe Susan Rice and stuff, in more uh, reforms like we had with Obama or Obama was trying to do. I'm really looking forward to seeing what Kamala Harris and Joe Biden do, you know, if they are the next administration. I deal with people every day who are literally set to die in prison for drugs. And, you know, no matter who's in office, we have this systemic problem. And I hope that people do address it. it it's past time. President Obama had the most robust clemency initiative ever. He granted clemency to more people than any modern day president by far. But there was a systemic issue there still, you know? And I think a lot of us looked at President Obama as our savior. I did too, you know? Whether unrealistically so, you know, he he can't he didn't create this problem. Yeah. You know, and, and so he did 1,700 people are free, you know, because of him, including seven of my clients. And so I think to move forward, we have to really start to reimagine what justice looks like, Chris. You know, I am beginning to get allergic to the word reform because when you're reforming something, you're just tinkering with the broken system. We have to transform the system. We have to completely reprogram our minds and brains to reimagine what justice looks like for us. Like, do you really want to live in a country where Sharonda Jones or Alice Johnson is serving life without parole in prison? You know, and so really questioning ourselves and learning about the issue. Criminal justice reform, you know, is a hot topic. It's popular. It's fashionable. In recent years, you know, you see more and more celebrities and influencers and people talking about it. And lots of change has been made, but there's still so much more to go. But even with how popular it is, I'm so shocked and surprised, even still, at how little people truly know about how the system works. It's, it's true. You know, it's got it, that it's whole not my back. It's, it, it, I think the problem with prison and prison reform and people think about policing is they have that whole not in my backyard sort of mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have, they have this attitude that, well, you went to prison, so throw you away the key. But hopefully now with Black Lives Matter, with uh, um, it's a horrible term, defunding the police, because it really doesn't speak to what they're trying to do and what it's about. It's a, it's a really bad PR term. Um, but I think people are starting to get it, or that's why 
people like me are trying to have these discussions so that Mm -hmm. people can have these thought expansions uh, in your book. Um, so that people can realize the systematic racism is there and how deep it goes. I mean, all the conversations we've been having, especially the last six months on the Chris Voss show with Black Lives Matter and, and the different aspects of what led us down this path all the way back to Manifest Destiny and, uh, you know, starting in this country and people's perceptions of of white privilege and, and white exceptionalism and, you know, all the founding of America. I mean, it's 400 years of, of uh, just a dearth of racism and repression and 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 stuff that just has brought us to this moment that we are cracking badly, especially under COVID. Um, but I think now you can really see. I mean, you look at the budgets that are in the police departments. Um, you know, I mean, the war on drugs has been failing for so long, and and more people admit. I think it was Erdman who admitted uh, uh, in the Nixon administration that they, you know, this is. This is what they did to persecute minorities. They knew that if they went after drugs, they would be persecuting the blacks and people that were rising up against the Vietnam War. That, that whole thing was started for that very purpose, to put people in jail. And then, um, you know, same thing with the Clinton administration with, uh, with the three strikes rule coming down hard. I mean, now, now they've looked back and gone, well, that was bad. But, um, yeah, we fill these prisons with, with people. We destroy lives, and then we destroy neighborhoods. We redline areas. Uh, you know, Jim Crow, we're seeing, the, uh, we're seeing the statues come down. That's why I wanted to reference that in the book because it's a fact of what we're dealing with. Do you think that with the defunding of police and what we're talking about, because we're already, we're already seeing some cities do the defunding and start putting money into rehab for addiction, for drugs, and things like that. Uh, do you think that we're we're starting down a good pathway there, or do you need to do more? Most likely, you know, I think the the concept is important, mm-hmm. and the steps being taken are important. You know, what I do know is that even with the the funding, the police, there's still this whole, as you mentioned, systemic issue. You know, it's one of the reasons. I, I wrote the book too. And what I really want readers to get out of the book is that I just want people to know the truth and really the truth about racial inequality in this country, but also the truth about human beings that America is locking up in cages on a daily basis. And when you look at where my clients are, for example, their whole interaction and journey through the criminal justice system, it starts with police. And so it's all combined. It's all a part of a huge, larger, oppressive system that we really have a lot of work, you know, to do on. And this is quite a moment we're in. Yeah. And I truly hope, as you mentioned, you know, we're not sitting here 50 years from now saying, you know, we should have listened to to Dr. King or Malcolm X or, or James Baldwin, as you said. You know, we we really have to take advantage of this moment we really do one of my biggest fears is that if biden is elected um we'll go back to the obama years um where everyone was like you know all the racists went in the closet and everyone saying kumbaya again i mean i was one of those people who's who is incredibly surprised with the rise of trump where i had friends that i thought we were all kumbaya and obama and great were you know, we didn't fix racism, but we're on a step toward progress. And, uh, 
and and then to see them come out of the closet, you're like, holy crap, you're you. Wow. Okay. You have some issues. Uh, and I'm hoping that we don't go through that. Like one of the things we've talked about in a lot of different books we've reviewed and authors is there's this pattern that we seem to go through this wave of presidents and, and sometimes generational where we, where we, you know, uh, 10 years, you know, one president's kind of good. You can actually kind of see it. You can look at Johnson and what he did for black and poor communities and minorities. And then you look at Nixon, the start of the drug war. And then you go to Carter, things seem to get eh, kind of a little bit better. And then Reagan comes raging in with his huge racist agenda that he brought from uh, California. And then, uh, and then you see, uh, what was it next? Uh, who came after Reagan? Man, I'm getting old. Bush. Bush, which, uh, you know, more of the same there. Uh, and then uh, you had Clinton that, that, that did the prison thing, but maybe there was a little bit betterment. I don't know. He did go after welfare and families and stuff. Uh, but then, you know, you, you go back to Bush and then you go back to um, Obama and then you go back to Trump. You know, we, we just seem to be like, we just never learn. We keep having these racist closet events where everyone comes out. What are some other topics or aspects of the book that you want people to think about? You know, to really think about what I'm trying to get across, which is how my definition of freedom evolves throughout, throughout the book. You know, my co-counsel and I, we team up and we say we pick locks to human cages. Wow. You know, but the liberation heist is much more than just getting people out of prison. You know, one of the questions that I'm pondering now and I'm sitting with every day and I don't have the answer is how do we create sustainable liberation? How do we help cultivate the entrepreneurial spirits of our clients? So when they are released, that they're not just merely trying to survive, but they're in positions to thrive. How do we get them access, you know, to capital? We, we have to find ways to really bridge that gap, you know, and I hope that readers will see that the true loss of mass incarceration is not just the lives stolen by injustice, Chris, but it's also the brilliance and beauty that each person who's been locked up for decades could have contributed to this world. You know, we have to find a way to end the brutal cycle because our collective future depends on it. Yeah. And it's interesting how, how, I, how the powers that be in the capital that's behind us, you know, you have these private prisons now and they're making, you know, they're all about the money. Uh, one thing I was really surprised to find out early on when uh, California was trying to go totally uh, uh, legal with the pot was the biggest funders of the lobbyists and, and, and people that were trying to stop it were the prison unions and the prison companies and the police departments. Like, I was like really surprised by that. I'm like, wait, this technically would make their job easier. But then I realized it's all about jobs. It's about money. It's about the prison industrial complex that we've allowed to be built in this country. That's uh, this part of its. That's part of its. Uh, um, this part of this uh, attack that is has been done on minorities, and so you still have to unravel all that stuff where. You know, uh, it's just extraordinary to me because you're like, wow, okay, they don't want they don't want pot to be 
legalized because number one, they have to let people out of prison, then they lose jobs, and then it makes it harder for racist cops to bust people up and put people in prison, which you know less rock, less of their rocks they get off. Um, yeah. And so you look at it, and you're just like, there, there's a lot we gotta deconstruct, rethink, and redo. There, there's a lot of work to be done, you know, and it can be overwhelming. It is for me, you know, and I do the work every day. And so for me, I had to find a specific niche within the system. I do a lot of work focused on women and girls in incarceration, as well as people serving this fundamental death sentence for drugs. And as you mentioned, you mentioned California. We have clients in prison for life for marijuana. Yeah. I have a client Farrell Scott he's from Dallas Texas and he's serving life for marijuana and Farrell says I sold marijuana and got a life sentence the people are selling marijuana today and getting a life savings and it's so true it's so real you know and even you mentioned the three strikes law and people kind of retreating on it if you will I know the first step act passed in 2018 Trump signed it it rolled back the three strikes law, you don't get mandatory life anymore for drugs, but you get 25 years, which is still a long time, you know, but the problem with that, Chris, is what I don't think people realize is that portion of the first step act was not made retroactive. Wow. So you have people serving life sentences today under yesterday's drug laws. That would drive me insane. If I was in prison, I saw that. That would just, yes. I've been heartened, you know, by states like California. I think other states have done it where they have made their, their retroactive release of prisons and stuff for people, uh, especially under marijuana. Um, you know, and like you say, I mean, California states, uh, Nevada, uh, Colorado, I think up the West coast, uh, all have now legalized marijuana. A lot of states I think now have, have switched to it. Um, you know, I started using marijuana recreationally because uh, I, uh, the vodka had just beaten up the old body way too much over the years in my old age, aches and pains. And uh, when recreational ma- marijuana became legal in Las Vegas, I started taking it. And what was interesting to me, I hadn't taken up until that point because I really, you know, like my freedom. Um, and uh, I didn't really, I don't really get the drug much. I'd rather have vodka, but my body's just like, you can't do that anymore. And I, what was interesting to me was I quit, t- I started taking recreational marijuana and I realized that I hadn't touched my acetaminophen, my Tylenol for like six months. And I was wow. using it for pain. I was using it for pain. Um, and that's when the light went on and I went, this is why drug companies, you know, which are, are doing their own drug dealing, especially with what happened with, uh, with the, uh, uh, oxy oxycotton and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys were drug lords. I mean, we we persecuted drug lords in in uh, like El Chapo for for less activity, I think, than those guys output. And uh, and so it made me realize why they don't want this drug to be legal. And probably number two because it's great at persecuting people, which is probably what the real drug war is about. You know, there there are con- countries like uh, I believe it's Belize. Uh, there's other countries in South America and around the world that they don't have a drug war 
uh, even like Canada has a place where uh, heroin users can go shoot up and they don't have to worry about it being arrested or harassed. And instead they focus on treatment programs and help and assistance and everything else uh, deals with addiction. You know, I, I had the attorney general for uh, the pending attorney general for the state of Utah on earlier this year. And, you know, I made a point to him. I said, do you, do you understand that most people that go into rehabs or that struggle with addiction many times they are, they've suffered some sort of sexual trauma as a child. And because of that, they're, they're trying to deal with that and, and make it go away in their head. And he was like, really? And I'm like, yeah, you should do some research into it. But this is why we need to try and help these people. Cause otherwise we just perpetuate the crimes, the damage and everything else. And then we wonder why we have the issues we have today. No, you're right. And we have to look back at, at our actions and really use that as a way to determine how we move forward. You know, you mentioned Oxycontin and, you know, we're in a horrible, horrible opioid epidemic right now. And rightly enough, people are looking to treat it as a public health crisis, you know, and get people help instead of incarceration. And that's so important, you know, but Unfortunately, the crack cocaine epidemic of the late 80s and early 90s wasn't looked at that way. It was demonized and criminalized, and it wasn't looked at as a public health crisis, and it very much was, you know, and that led to users and dealers being locked up for exponential sentences, and now we have to get those people free. Meanwhile, all the guys who own those drug companies are walking around pretty much free. I think there's a couple that have been arrested, but, but you know, they just buy their way out of thing. And, and we don't really look at the destruction. I'm hoping that this, this will extend, uh, and I'm hoping, I was kind of actually hoping Kamala Harris would end up being attorney general because I'd love to see her tear, the, tear it up. You know, it's always fun to see her in the <laughs> Senate hearings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's send her after everybody. But no, it'll be great that she's uh, in there as vice president and maybe she'll become, uh, Biden's only says one term, so maybe she'd, be, she'd become the next president. Um, but I, I think that would be good. I uh, uh, One thing Trump did was he undid all the, I believe, I can't remember the name of it, there were the contracts that uh, Obama and Eric Holder would do with the, um, after Ferguson, would do with the police departments to clean up the racism. But I think a lot more needs to be done, a lot more accountability. I do think they need to take away the, their their ability to kill at will. I mean, you know, and, and we see the extraordinary uh, one of the most recent examples was that a 17-year-old and then the young gentleman who was shot seven times in the back. You know, he gets shot seven times in the back. And he, it doesn't appear on the video. He's really doing much other than just trying to get back into his car. And and yet you see the young kid walk by the cops who's white. And and the cops are like, yeah, he's white. Give him a pass. And the guy's like, I just committed murders. <laughs> and you just see it right there. You're just like, that is the problem. And and why we need to address this uh, in our society, and we need to start working. It's a long, hard road, I'm sure, to do it, especially to undo a lot of the different things that Stephen Miller has done. Um, but uh, yeah, so in the book, you talk a lot about the stories of of some of the people you work with, some of the success stories, what it's like, and I, I think it's good for people to understand what these people are like. Cause when you see uh, the young lady who's released, who spoke with the RNC recently uh, by Trump and, and Kim Kardashian, your guys's effort, she's a nice little old lady. I mean, she's, she, who's she going to hurt? 
there, there was no, I mean, it was just morally and economically unjustifiable for Alice Johnson and many others to be spending the rest of their natural lives in prison. You know, do we really want our taxpayer dollars going towards locking Alice Johnson up for life? Do we really want our taxpayer dollars going to taking people, stripping them from their families and being positive contributors to society for life? You know, I think that with the life sentences like I focus on, it just takes a special type of grace and dignity to carry a sentence like that and to wake up daily set to die in prison. And for my clients and what I try to articulate in the book is how even in spite of circumstances that would be unbearable for many with this life sentence, they remain so positive and encouraging. I tell people a lot that I worked and I've helped free a lot of people but at the same time, they are freeing me too. Hmm. And it's just some remarkable, brilliant people that I have had the privilege and honor to, to represent. And I know that they have to be empowered, directly impacted people, have to be at the center of any movement, of any work surrounding them. And they have to be empowered to have a seat at the table and to be working to lead any efforts related to, to transforming the system. And I've had friends that have gotten caught into the system. Sometimes they did things that they shouldn't have. They made a bad decision when they were young. Um, one of the problems with the, in my opinion, with the parole system is it's so easy to get banged back. It's so easy to get pulled back. And the system actually perpetuates itself through the parole system, in my opinion. Um, you know, any sort of small infraction, any any sort of, I mean, you can get pulled over, I think, for a traffic ticket and get banged back, if I understand correctly. Um, and, and, and to me, that's also part of the systematic racism, is it not? No, absolutely. Without a doubt, the system... The entire criminal justice system, from your first contact with law enforcement through your parole or probation supervision, is it bleeds with racial injustice. You know, it just per- it, it it gets so frustrating at times because I see it so often, and I see the heartache and pain, and I see the the destruction of mass incarceration. And you're right, like you get someone. We, we have people, our clients, for example, they get out, they go to the halfway house. And even some of the rules at the halfway house are insane. Like mm-hmm. for a while, they couldn't have smartphones. But they were required to look for a job. <laughs> but there were no computers at the halfway house. But when they would go, they would get these passes to go out and apply for jobs. Who's taking paper applications these days? Like nobody. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so it's like they need a smartphone unless y'all are going to get computers in the halfway house. They need smartphones to apply for jobs, you know, and so but then you have to apply for so many jobs. You have to get a job in a certain amount of time. But there's all these barriers, you know, to reentry. And my mom, you know, was on probation and parole when she got out of prison. And I saw firsthand that, you know, and not only these traps with probation, but my mom couldn't even get an apartment in her name, Chris. Wow. You know, and with this reentry and all the obstacles that we have in this country, it's just setting people up for failure. It does. It really does. I mean, uh, you, I, I would, I would see friends that got banged back on parole. 
um, for just minor infractions. I mean, if you don't get back in time to the halfway th- house, I think you bang back. Like, mm-hmm. they, like you say, there are things, but we don't, we don't give them support for jobs either. We're like, you, uh, we didn't train you for anything in the, in the uh, prison except for license plates. Uh, so, uh, so go get that job there or we might have to put you back. And, you know, one of the things you have to do is when you, my friends will tell me, they're like, yeah, when well, you have to go to a job, we have to explain to them that, yeah, Mm-hmm. prison for this and and blah 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 and you know right away it goes right in the tubes um one thing that may need to be done is and maybe this can be done through investment or some sort of thing is to make some sort of segue job program to to pull those people out when they get out and then put them through the thing do do we need to create like uh, a commission to to relook at maybe uh, getting m- making the federal system so there is a parole system, maybe a federal commission or, or a state by state case commission that re that basically sits down with everything that's everyone that's in prison currently and goes let's relook at these cases, let's relook at you know the justice or the quote unquote justice that, w- that took place on them and and is this person really an endangerment to society? Or what, what more steps would you advise on top of that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's legislation that's been introduced at the federal level to, to introduce the very thing, to give parole back, you know, to give this second look. You know, I just feel that whatever commissions are set up or councils are set up to look at the system should be a diverse group and should include formerly incarcerated people, you know, and directly impacted people to really give true insight, you know, on how do we transform this system? How do we shift the paradigm? And, you know, there's so much work to do. There's lots of great places to start. We just have to keep going. Yeah. And sometimes if you bang back on parole, you can pretty much go serve your full term and it can be just simple. And sometimes it's just your parole agent and uh, I'll take this one for the team, but sometimes your parole agent just might be a racist and he wants to bang you back. I mean, they really do come around looking to bang you back. I mean, that's, it's kind of almost a power trip in some cases, in my opinion. Um, Yeah. And you're right. It's very subjective. Yeah. And, And I, I really, you know, more and more we looked at it, uh, and and more and more there comes realization that the problem starts with the police departments, with racist cops, with people with either either uh, uh, conscious bias or unconscious bias, um, and when they approach people, they like uh, you look at the what the Wisconsin sheriff I think it is has said uh, about minorities and stuff and locking people up, talking about them as their animals I think it is, and you're just like why does that guy still have a job, eh? Um, and so I think cities hopefully need to redo these budgets. We need to put more into mental health. You know, I watch, I watch cops a million times. I know how that kind of goes down. I used to love watching that show and, and yeah, there's so many situations that they go to that really need like a, a counselor for like domestic violence. They need, uh, you know, uh, someone to come help for mental health, et cetera, et cetera. Like all these families, you know, you don't need someone showing up at a gun at a domestic violence thing. You need somebody to show up and go, hey, we need to put you in marriage counseling. And we need to figure out what's going on with you from a psychological basis. And instead, just sometimes, I mean, not every case is the same, but a lot of times sending someone in a gun in these high situations just just make everything amplified with emotion. And 
you know, it just, it just takes it to the next level. And then suddenly someone's either dead or going to prison or something, you know, it just escalates the situation. And you know, that there are guys that are in the police departments that this is how they get their rocks off. This is their thing. This is they, you know, they love this sort of stuff. Um, and so I'm hoping that books like yours, people read, people learn from, people understand the humanity of what these mm-hmm. folks are going through. These are human beings. And I think that's where we really lose ourselves in in just thinking about, well, you know, the people in justice system, they must have done some bad, so they deserve to go to prison, and, and we're just not going to worry about those people. You're absolutely right, and you hit on one of the key points that I try to make in the book, and that's the human element. We have to look past the numbers and see the person, the heartbeat. And the human element is critical, but it's often ignored, though it's necessary to drive impactful change. And and that's like one of the underlying key messages I hope people receive from the book. Most definitely. Uh, anything in the book we didn't cover that we want to cover before we go out? No, I think we touched on a lot of it. I encourage people to order the book and and learn more and really get to know some really remarkable people um, and their stories in the book who were my clients and who are now free doing some incredible things. I mean, we all go through a life and I think we can, I can look back on times where I made some stupid mistakes. Uh, maybe I did a little bit too many buzz drivings. Uh, you know, there, there are all sorts of different things where we make bad choices in life as human beings. And a lot of people just don't deserve to have their whole lives thrown away. And I think addressing the systematic racism feature of it is one of the most important parts. And, and that's why I've been having, enjoying these discussions is, is I've had a lot of people say to me, wow, I didn't really think about what you're talking, you guys are talking about before, but now I see how this weaves into everything and how we really have to start working hard and caring more about people and, and uh, understanding what's gone wrong and making serious, strong changes. So hopefully this will engender much of that. I hope so. I, I hope, hope so, so too. Cause I don't want to be here 55 years. <laughs> <laughs> went through another Donald Trump, let's put it that way. Uh, so, folks, uh, give me your plugs one more time, if you would, Brittany. So people yes, absolutely. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Miss BKB, M-S-B-K-B. Or you can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn under Brittany K. Barnett. And I'm just super grateful for your time today, Chris, and absolutely enjoyed our discussion. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed your book so far. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, it and like I said, it made me cry. It's beautifully written. I mean, the way you Thank lay you. out the stories and everything. Um, and uh, I hope people read it. I want people to understand these things. I, I watched a lot of different research videos on some of your clients, and and they're just wonderful people. And you can't they imagine them being in jail. They're kind of like your grandma, and you're like, what? What is this? What, this isn't some sort of heinous criminal. I mean. I've, you know, I met people that are predators in life and stuff like that, and they probably do deserve to be in jail. But when you realize what's gone on in the background of this, anyway, guys, be sure to order Brittany's book. You can take and get it on Amazon. Uh, you can just search for it on Amazon, or you can go to Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. You can check it out there and order it up and all that good stuff. 
The uh, also you go to the ECVPN uh, and refer to the friends, neighbors, relatives uh, on the show so that they can take and subscribe to it. Uh, I definitely advise you to check it out, read it, and uh, and hopefully uh, petition your local um, uh, and national uh, city councils and state councils, federal councils to make changes to this uh, this uh, thing that's been going on for way way too long. Thanks, Amanda, for tuning in. Thanks, for Brittany, for being here. And we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.